Good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ben Robertson, and I'm the campus minister with Reform University Fellowship at William & Mary. So, uh, parents, if you're here this weekend, uh, we're really glad you're here, and I'm particularly glad you're here, and I'd love to meet you after the service. So I'll be, I'll be down catch a plane, I understand, but I'd love to at least shake your hand uh, and welcome you. If you've been here over the last several weeks, woo, a little bit of feedback. I don't know if anybody else is it. Okay, I think we got it. If you've, been, if you've been here over the last few weeks, you know that here at Grace Covenant, we've been doing a series on various elements of worship, what we do week in and week out. And this week we're looking at prayer, and where better to look than where Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. In Matthew chapter 6, which is right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has sat down on the mountain and he is instructing his disciples on page 811 in, in your pew Bible, if you want to grab one of those. So we'll start at verse 7. The word of the Lord. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, Neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Strong words. We need help, so let's ask for it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you. We thank you that you sat on a hillside and preached. You taught. And we pray now as we return to these words first spoken from your own mouth, that we would hear you speak afresh, that your Spirit would enlighten our hearts and open our ears so that we might be changed, so that we might learn how to pray. We ask it in your name. Amen. We pray a lot in worship. I was looking over the bulletin. I counted, I think, 42 different times of prayer throughout the service. Not really 42, but quite a few. We, we prepare our hearts beforehand. I'm assuming we pray sort of at the moment. We We have an invocation where we ask God to join us. We confess our sins. We bring our needs before the congregation, uh, of the congregation before God in prayer. Many songs are actually prayers that we sing. I just prayed before we started the sermon. Prayer is obviously essential to the life of the individual in worship, but it's also essential to all of us. And so this morning we're going to look at this text and we're going to ask the question, What does Jesus show us about the God to whom we pray that informs why and how we pray here in the Lord's Prayer? We're going to see several things, but first, we see that God is far. God is far, far off. Look at verse 9. Our Father in heaven... The first thing out of our mouths as we speak to God the Father is we say, you are in heaven. 
you are far off. The picture is of a king seated on a throne. And anytime we get a picture, a little window into heaven throughout the Scriptures, it, God is pictured on a throne in heaven surrounded by a chorus, sometimes of saints who are already, have already gone to join Him, sometimes by angels, and they are praising Him as the king, the ruler, the one who transcends and is above and beyond anything on this earth. He's in heaven. We are on earth. He is far, far off. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In the Old Testament, the name of God was so closely associated with him that when you referred to his name, it was as if you were referring to him. And Jesus says, hallowed be your name. Hallowed, we don't really use that word in everyday speech. Uh, the new translations have held on to it for tradition, tradition's sake. But basically, what hallowed, to say that something would be hallowed means that it would be treated as holy. That it would be regarded as holy. And Jesus says when we pray, we say, Lord, let us treat your name as holy. Come to a holy God. Well, what does holy mean? Of course, you probably know it means righteous or pure, blameless, spotless. But more than that, the word holy has a sense of exactly what we're saying here. Something that is holy is something set apart. Something other. Something different. Something transcendent. In fact, if you look up the word holy in a theological dictionary of the Bible, the theologian will attempt to explain what holy means, and then after a while will say, we have a difficult time defining the word holy, kind of like we have a difficult time defining God. God's holiness is His Godness. Something distinct about Him that makes Him so utterly beyond us that we can barely even express it in words. The God to whom we pray is far. If you, like me, were a mediocre high school athlete, you may have experienced something like it. Where someone is other. Where I'm on the basketball court and I know that I'm second string for a reason. I'm not fast enough. I cannot jump high enough, I'm not good enough to keep up with this guy that I'm supposed to guard, and he keeps taking the ball from me, so I go back to the bench, because he's other. Right? Or even a, a next step up, a, a student recently told me that his professor at William & Mary, in teaching a course on Greek mythology, said, I never understood the character Achilles until I watched Michael Jordan play basketball. And he was so untouchable. Seemed to have no weaknesses. Or think of Tiger Woods, who now actually has a Gatorade flavor named for him. They've named the preeminent sports drink of the world after him now. It's just called Tiger. Because he's so good and so dominant. And we wonder if he's an alien. He's so good. He's so other. Or to get an even better picture of it. As, as John Piper says of the Grand Canyon, he says, no one goes to the Grand Canyon to boost their self-esteem. <laughs> you go to see that it is huge. That it is massive. I went when I was 10 and it's sort of a... If you're an American, you're not an American if you don't at some point try to go see the Grand Canyon, right? Recently, I had a friend who went and visited and I didn't know about this. They didn't have this when I was, when I was a kid and we went. But one of the Native American tribes has actually constructed a plexiglass walkway that goes out over the Grand Canyon. 
and you strap little socks over your shoes so that you don't, you don't get dirt on the plexiglass. You pay your money and you walk out over the Grand Canyon 4,000 feet above the Colorado River and look down. <laughs> Can you imagine? She said her, her friend that went with her refused to go out. They had paid money to get on the bus. They had paid the money to get there, and when they got to the, to the plexiglass, said, no, I can't do it. It's too much. It's awe-inspiring. It's so vastly bigger and beyond that he couldn't even take a step out. And when we look in the Scripture, that's exactly how... I'm going to read a couple examples. First, Moses... When he encounters God in the burning bush, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Why? Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Don't, become, don't come near, because God is far. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Likewise with Isaiah that we read a few weeks ago. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up like a king in heaven. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, which are angels. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet, and with two he flew and the one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The foundations of the threshold shook and the voice of Him who called rang out and the house was filled with smoke. And He said, Isaiah said, Woe to me, I'm lost. For I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, the king on the throne in heaven, holy, so much so that angels who are holy beings themselves, they're sinless creatures, and yet they can't stand to look at him. They cover their faces and shield their feet because this God is so other, so far beyond. And our prayer ought to reflect that. Jesus teaches us to pray saying, Lord, may we regard your name as holy. May we come before you in prayer knowing that you are other, that you are far. In that moment where we prepare our hearts for worship, that's the deep breath before stepping onto the plexiglass. Here we go. This God is other. And so we pray in a way that reminds ourselves, everyone around us, to say, take off your shoes. Remember, we come to a holy God. You may be thinking, if that's the way that God is, I don't think I want to be here. And how can I say it all? But the good news is that God is not just transcendent. He's not just holy. He's not just far. But He's also near. God is near. Notice again in verse 9, how does Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father. Now in the Old Testament, they had a concept of God as being the ruler, the king, 
in one sense, a father. But in the New Testament, that is expanded upon tremendously, enormously by Jesus and by the apostles. That term father is like the tip of the iceberg under which sits the whole gospel. Listen to what Paul says about our adoption as sons. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's prayer. He says, we address this holy God as our Father. And that word Abba, many of you probably know, that word Abba would have been what children of that day called their fathers. Daddy. Dada. As you heard, some of you during the prayer heard my daughter saying to me, Daddy, Daddy. The transcendent holy God from whom angels hide their faces says, call me Daddy. Because Jesus, the Son of God, teaches us to pray that way. Because He goes before us as true Son of God. And our prayer should reflect that. In fact, look at what Jesus says here in verse 7. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. He is near. He knows what you need before you ask. That phrase, the Gentiles, meant pagan religions with their idols and their deities. And we have records of these old pagan prayers where they would throw out every name of every deity that they could think of. They had phrases that they would repeat again and again and again. And often these prayers would have been acted out with sort of a flamboyant display of prayer, hoping that they could somehow get the attention of the gods, wave their flags, shout out loud, even strike themselves, chanting, repeating over and over with the hopes that some far-off God might be stirred and would listen and come down. And Jesus said, don't be like them. Because your Father is near. He knows what you need before you ask Him. Our daughter Naomi, who is two years old now, a few months back she was going through the hide-and-seek phase and the peekaboo phase. And she would cover her eyes. And of course, from her perspective, from her worldview, and she had blacked out her eyes, the universe, of course, has now disappeared. If she can't see, no one else can see. And I can remember one morning when she was in the middle of our living room covering her eyes, and my wife Dawn said, Naomi, I see you even when you don't see me. I see you even when you don't see me. And Jesus is telling his disciples, look, I see you even when visibly, not in front of you. And yet Jesus is saying, don't be like the Gentiles. So often when we pray, we think, hey, we're initiating a relationship with God now. I'm going to go to God. I'm going to get his attention. And he says, I'm there the whole time. Before a word comes off your tongue, I know what you need. I am near. I am near in the gospel. And some of you this morning simply need to hear that. And that alone. Your heart is cold. You feel terribly unspiritual. 
and you think God is far, far away and that you can't come back to him until you've done something to fix it. And Jesus here says, no. Don't think that way. He is near. I see you, even if you can't see me. Now that would be wonderful if that were it. The transcendent God, far off, comes near into relationship with us. But he doesn't stop there. His mission in the world is not simply to make us feel nice or feel better about ourselves. But he has a mission for the world. Our God is far and he is near, but he is also at work. God is at work. Verse 10. How do we pray showing that God is at work? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This prayer acknowledges that God is about the business of establishing His kingdom, His reign, His rule on earth. Essentially what we pray when we say, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we say, Bring the far near. Make this world, as it were, heaven on earth. Transform it. Change it. This is God's mission for you for me and for the whole world. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. I'm going to take a look quickly at the different petitions of the prayer, the different requests that he teaches us to give. Verse 11, we see we are to ask for provision. As God's kingdom comes, we ask for provision. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Now in Jesus' time, that would have been no small thing to ask for. If you missed a day or two of work, you and your family would not eat. It was a hand-to-mouth society for many, many people, if not the majority. So to say, give me bread, was not a small thing. They didn't have the U-crops, lions, and the blue to just run. Food was not in super abundance as we have it here. And yet, bread in context doesn't just stand for a simple meal. It's, Lord, give me everything that I need. Take care of our needs, which is why we have the time of prayer and worship service where we come and we say, Lord, please provide for us. We are wounded. We are hurting. We are sick. People have lost jobs. And often we can think, well, don't we have something more spiritual to pray for than this sick person or that? Jesus here says, no. You bring needs to the Father who hears your prayer and who knows your needs, who is close to you and whose kingdom consists in part of providing for your needs and the needs of others around you. It's okay to ask. It's okay to admit that you need, that you are dependent, and to ask your loving Father for it. We ask for provision. Second, verse 12, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. God is at work in the world, bringing the far near, and when that happens, it it looks like reconciliation. It looks like forgiveness, both vertical forgiveness between us and God and horizontal forgiveness between us and other people. And in this passage, forgiveness between yourself and other people and yourself and God are so closely connected that Jesus says, you cannot expect to have forgiveness between yourself and God if you're not also seeing it between others. Why? Because when the kingdom comes, it looks like restored relationships. 
it looks like forgiveness because the gospel looks like forgiveness. And it's a holistic, full, rounded forgiveness for which we pray that our relationships would be restored, that we would have forgiveness. This is incidentally why we have the prayer part of our, of our worship where we confess our sins. We confess our sins against God. We confess our sins against each other with the hope of restoration and reconciliation and the confidence that He hears us, that He does, in fact, forgive. Now, verse 13. We've had provision and forgiveness. Now we have deliverance. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This request demonstrates that there is something very wrong with the world and it openly acknowledges that we are part of the problem. When we pray, Lord, do not lead me into temptation, we are acknowledging, if I am led into temptation, I will fall into evil because I am part of the problem. I need to forgive others and others need to forgive me. I can't do this. So don't even let me go near it. Don't lead me into temptation, but make me a part of what it looks like to have heaven on earth. It shows that we are part of the problem. It also shows that we are not the solution. Deliver us from evil. We're calling on our God who is at work because we need deliverance. We need rescue. We need to be saved. Deliver us from evil. And commentators are sort of split down the middle over whether evil means evil in general, sin, everything that's wrong with the world, or whether evil means Satan himself, the evil one. I'm torn between the two. I lean towards the Satan interpretation. Because the picture is of a king who is mighty in battle, who is coming to deliver his people from a false ruler. And we are saying, we need your help. Deliver us. Fix the brokenness of the world. I want to speak to you, if you're here this morning, as I know some of you are, sort of checking Christianity out, maybe for the first time, or maybe you're returning to the church. And this was one of the things that in the past has run you away. Because you hear Christians talking about this kingdom that God is bringing as though we know what's best, and we know what's right, and everyone else has a problem, and you need God to fix your problem. But I would simply say that this entire prayer assumes something about the world that you already know is true, and it's part of the reason why you're here this morning. You know that the world is broken, that it's not the way it's supposed to be. I want to read to you a song Helen subscription to a magazine called Pace Magazine, they recently said that Bob Dylan is the most influential and greatest living singer-songwriter. And I thought, well, that's, that's not really news. It's sort of like saying Tiger Woods is the best living golfer. Everyone knows that, but they acknowledge this, this writer to be so influential that he speaks to and for so much of our culture and so much of the way that we all work. And listen to what Dylan says about the world. Broken lines broken strings, broken threads, broken springs, broken idols, broken heads, people sleeping in broken beds. Ain't no use jiving, ain't no use joking, everything is broken. Broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates, 
broken dishes, broken parts. Streets are filled with broken hearts. Broken words never meant to be spoken. Everything is broken. Seems like every time you stop and turn around, something else just hit the ground. Broken cutters, broken saws, broken buckles, broken laws. Broken bodies, broken bones, broken voices on broken phones. Take a deep breath, feel like you're choking. Everything is broken. Every time you leave and go off someplace, things fall to pieces in my face. Broken heads, hands on broken plows, broken treaties, broken vows, broken pipes, broken tools, people bending broken rules. Hound dog howling, bullfrog croaking. Everything, everything is broken. Bob Dylan knows this, and he speaks for so many of us. He speaks for all of us, because you know this too. I had a friend recently tell me, he's a grown man. Ben, the day my parents sat me down and told me they were getting a divorce was the worst day of my life. He was 10 years old. And he still feels the consequences of that day. You know the brokenness. You've experienced it in your own life. You've experienced it in your relationships. You've experienced it in your own failures. You've experienced it every time you snapped at your children and had your coffee yet. And suddenly the monster comes out and the brokenness is revealed and you realize that you're part of it. And I would simply say to you, if that's an objection that you have to Christianity, I would simply say... Every worldview, every philosophy of life, every person understands that there's something not right with the world, and you know this. And everyone wants to offer some sort of solution. So what we're doing is not that different. And if there is this God who is there, who is far off, who is transcendent, and yet who is drawn near, would it not make sense that we would say, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as is in heaven, and that we would want to get on board with that? And that's exactly what our prayer is. That's exactly how Jesus teaches us to pray, to connect with the King, the far-off God, and to get on board with His kingdom in fixing the brokenness. And of course, where does that come from? The far-off God is most near. It's in the person whose words we're reading. Jesus, who sat on the hillside to teach His disciples to pray. God Himself, the far-off God, not just come near, but come in the flesh. Become one of us. To not only experience the brokenness and to point it out, but to actually have that brokenness in its fullest inflicted on Him at the cross. For He not only names the brokenness of the world, but He experiences it at its worst. And though it breaks Him initially, He's not defeated by it, but He is resurrected. The breaking in of heaven on earth. Resurrection is the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven where death no longer has a sting and death no longer has victory and Jesus rises from the grave inaugurating His kingdom and calling you into it to come in with Him, to come in behind Him, to come in to Him. And so comes the kingdom. And that is why we pray. So let's do it now. Lord Jesus, we thank You We thank You that You are the High King, that You are our Lord, and that You have brought deliverance. We ask, Lord, that Your kingdom would come, that Your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
and that you would continue to transform us, to renew us, to strengthen us. And as we meet you at your table this morning, we ask that you to do it again. It's in your name we pray because there's not another name that we can pray in. Amen.